Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. On EM Cases over the years, we've talked a lot about the various ingredients for enjoying a fulfilling career in emergency medicine. If I stop and think about it, that's really what EM Cases is all about. Learning how to be a better doc by sharing our knowledge in an engaging and effective way so that we can all go to work feeling good about what we do, save some lives, and improve outcomes. But you can't really come up with all the ingredients of enjoying a fulfilling career in EM without talking about money. Cold, hard money. And it's something we don't talk about that often at work. Especially if you work in an academic center, it seems almost sinful to talk about money. After all, in EM, it should all be about taking care of patients as best we can, right? Well, I'd argue that it's really challenging to take great care of patients unless we're somewhat comfortable with our financial situation. Because if we're practicing EM just to make money, we'll probably end up very unsatisfied and not taking good care of patients. And if we hardly think about money at all and don't have a good financial plan, we might end up having to work for way longer than we ever intended and run the risk of burning out. So with the help of a Canadian EM doc who's dedicated the latter part of his career to helping other docs think about their financial planning so that they can have a more fulfilling career, it's my pleasure and honor to have on the show the incredible speaker, Dr. Matt Pointer, the brains behind the fantastic Money Smart MD course. Welcome, Dr. Pointer. Thank you very much, Anton. I'm really happy to be here. Right on. So to help you make sense of what we're going to discuss, I'd like to break our discussion down into four parts. So those four parts are earning, spending, saving, and investing. So earning, basically how we earn, spending, and in particular, how to spend smarter, saving in a way that isn't painful and feels good like exercising regularly sort of thing. And lastly, investing. A bit about how all the different investment options work and how to invest wisely in a general sense. Okay, just a quick disclaimer before we dive into things. In this podcast, we'll provide some general information only. The advice we give is not intended as specific legal, financial, or professional advice. We are obviously not certified financial planners. So our goal isn't to tell you what to do, but just to give you some of the tools to find the right thing that works for you. And most importantly, no endorsement of any third parties or advice, opinions, information, products, or services is given or implied in this podcast. And as already mentioned, we need to declare that Dr. Pointer runs an amazing online course that I myself have taken and loved called Money Smart MD where he dives deeper into all the topics that we're going to cover today. So we're going to get into the nitty gritty of financial planning, but first I'd like the listeners to kind of get a little sense of how you came to get interested in this stuff. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in learning and teaching about financial planning and uh, basically what your journey was to this point? Yeah, I'm happy to Anton. Thank you again for having me on your podcast. As you know, 
I've been a fan for years and I'm always so impressed with the guests that you have. I wish I was a little bit more exceptional than I actually am to deserve the spotlight like this, but... uh, You are, dude. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually a very typical and average doctor. Um, But I actually think that that works to my advantage a little bit because it shows that you don't have to be special in any way to be good with money. And that's kind of the point that I try to make when I talk to doctors about money. So... I'm no smarter than the average doctor, and I'm actually probably worse than average when it comes to math. So if I can learn how to be successful with money, then I truly believe that any doctor can. Whether it's deserved or not, doctors don't tend to have the greatest reputation when it comes to money. We might be aware of that, which I think is a little bit funny, though, because if you think about it, we should be quite well equipped because we're trained to gather evidence-based information, to be skeptical of questionable claims, and to solve problems, oftentimes problems that are much more complex than financial issues. And it's all those same skills that are needed in personal finance. So in terms of my personal story, uh, I was certainly no teenage investing genius. I didn't start learning about money until I was a resident about 20 years ago. Uh, Even though I had a big student debt like most of us do, I took a portion of my paycheck every month and I started investing in mutual funds like I'd seen my dad do in the 1990s. I mean, it worked pretty well for him, it seemed, Uh, so it should work for me, right? So every month I would put $225 into an RRSP that I'd opened at the big bank that I already had accounts with. That's like a 401k for the American listeners. And I would buy a handful of mutual funds that I had picked because they had a fairly impressive track record up until that point in time. And I just kept that going while I focused on learning how to do LPs and reduce fractures and to be a decent doctor. And then at the end of my residency, I looked more closely at my account, expecting to see that my money had grown, only to find that I'd barely broken even. In the meantime, the mutual fund companies and my advisor at the big bank had been siphoning off their fees every year, So even though I was the one who put up all the money and took all the risk, they made more money than I did. So once I had passed my EM exam, I switched gears from learning the ins and outs of Tintinale to the ins and outs of investing. And what I realized is that the advice that I'd been given was not evidence-based at all. And worse, I realized that actually the entire traditional financial services industry is designed not to make me money, but to make itself money. I mean, in medicine, our clients are our patients, and we know they always come first. But it's not the same way in the financial services industry. And so I realized that I really had to start educating myself. And so I got out of those high-fee mutual funds, and I started following a simple evidence-based approach. Now, like a lot of people, I did try my hand at picking stocks and timing the market a few times, and I learned a few painful lessons. But, you know, if everything you did was right, you'd never get to know what's wrong. And knowing the wrong thing to do is actually really important. So I needed to make those mistakes to truly understand that when it comes to money, simplicity is not just easier but a simple financial plan is actually more likely to help you achieve your financial goals. And it turned out that I just loved learning about this stuff and putting it into practice. I got 
so excited about it actually that I wrote an article a few years later about some of the most important lessons that I'd learned as a new DIY investor. And it ended up, ended up being published in a small finance magazine up here in Canada, which was great. But what was even better was the response. I started getting emails from people who were 10 or 20 or 30 years older than me, some of them even asking for my opinion about things. And so I kept on learning and writing, at the very least trying to get as smart as some of these people seemed to think I was. And so all of that effort led to a blog about investing and then also some presentations at medical conferences to help improve the financial literacy of my colleagues. And it was awesome because even though money is something that a lot of doctors are uncomfortable with, I could see that it didn't have to be that difficult. And I also saw how powerful financial knowledge could be. Not so that we can all live in mansions and drive around in Bentleys, but so that we could enjoy financial security and not suffer the extra burden of financial stress on top of the stresses of working as physicians. Because on a personal level, I could feel that creeping up on me, the stress of full-time emergency medicine. I don't mean the good stress, like the thrilling stress of dealing with weird and wonderful clinical problems. We all know that's the fun part. But the stress of working in a healthcare system that felt like it was bursting at the seams a lot of days with too many patients and not enough resources. Fortunately, I didn't flame out in medicine or have a heart attack from exhaustion. Most days, actually, I still seem to be one of the happier people in the department. But our family hit a financial milestone. We'd been saving fairly aggressively. And at least after those initial investing hiccups, uh, we were investing with a good, solid, evidence-based approach, and we had also cleared all of our debts. So even though the milestone that we hit might not seem like a huge number to some people, we had kept our lifestyle fairly modest by doctor's standards, and that gave us choices. Around that time, I came across a quote by Helen Keller that really sums up how we were thinking, and it's really stuck with me ever since then. She says that life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Security does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than exposure. So, we decided that it was the right time to do something a little bit crazy. Uh, we saw that we had this little window of opportunity for a daring adventure as a family, and so we took it. We sold our house and our cars and most of our stuff and backpacked around the world for a year as a family. And in the end, we traveled to 22 countries on five continents, and I could tell you 100 stories from each one, but the point is that we could do that because I discovered some basic concepts about money and I'd put them into practice on a relatively consistent basis. And those basic but often misunderstood concepts are exactly the ones that I'm so passionate to talk with other doctors about. Most people think that being good with money is about being good at math or being good at picking stocks, but it's not about that at all. It's mostly about understand how we think about money and avoiding some really common mistakes. Money is the Swiss army knife of life. You can use it in so many different ways, and doctors are totally capable of learning how to use it. Well, what an amazing journey you've had. I think that's the first time on EM Cases that we've had someone really dig deep into sort of where they've come from. So thank you for that. That was amazing. And I, I'm very, very curious about these evidence-based approaches to money, which I'm sure we're going to get into. 
And I have a feeling that we're going to sort of be chatting lots about general life lessons and not just money. <laughs> so it's all interrelated. I have some colleagues who read about financial planning regularly and have sort of a keen interest in it, but most of us either are too busy or don't have the interest to keep up with these things. You know, we're, we're too busy with trying to become better doctors, parents, friends, citizens. What beliefs about money do docs generally have that sort of hold them back? I actually believe that having a good handle on our financial lives makes us better doctors and parents and friends. But just like having an interest in health doesn't make a naturopath evidence-based or particularly effective, we have to be really careful about where we get our information and the biases that we bring to the table especially. When it comes to money, cognitive biases and errors are really common. Money is only about 5,000 years old. So as a species, we did not evolve with money. So we're not really wired for it. So the decisions and behaviors that make someone good with money can actually seem counterintuitive at first. And this can make it seem like finance is complicated and hard, but it's not. So I guess the first money belief that I think holds doctors back is that they believe it's too hard for them to learn. What do we do in medicine when the right answer is not immediately apparent to us? Well, we follow the evidence, and that exact same approach works in finance. The second thing that holds us back is more of a psychological thing, and that's overconfidence in our predictions about what's going to make us happy. Usually, this manifests in our spending. We think that buying these shoes or this Porsche or living in that big house is going to make us happy. It turns out that what the research is really clear about is that we're pretty terrible at predicting what's going to make us happy. Most of our purchases give us a little dopamine hit. We feel good for a bit and then we just get used to that thing. So what seemed special just becomes our new normal and our lifestyle costs tend to go up and up and up. Now, I should mention the other side of that. It's a little less common, but for some doctors, they have the opposite problem. They're super frugal because they think that they'll feel happy if they just have three or five or eight million dollars in the bank. But having more money doesn't actually change the way that we think about money. So the solution to both of these is to reflect deeply about what we want our money to do for us and then make a good plan around those values. Yeah, it sounds like there's kind of a sweet spot somewhere between spending on material stuff and just being insanely frugal and not giving yourself anything. And then they have to figure out where they lie on that spectrum and what's ultimately going to make them a little bit more happy. So how do you figure that out for yourself if it's not obvious? Well, there's no black and white rules that are going to apply to everybody. I think the way that we figure this out for ourselves is by taking a little bit of time and stepping back and to really define our values. Related to this idea of this spectrum of spending and saving and your values and figuring out where you lie on that spectrum is the concept of time affluence. So I want to talk a little bit about what time affluence is. You know, time is probably our most valuable asset and time affluence is that feeling of having control of how you use your time and the feeling of having enough time in your day. And the reason 
we should care about time affluence is because it's thought to promote happiness and well-being. And about 80% of working folks feel time poor, you know, that they don't have enough time to fulfill all their daily responsibilities. And the number I would guess is even probably higher for doctors. So how should we think about time affluence when it comes to making spending and saving money? Yeah, this is such an important question, Anton, because it's the root of so much exhaustion and unhappiness among doctors. And it's also so fixable. I know this might sound a little bit abstract, but we can't understand our relationship with money unless we also understand our relationship with time. Feeling like we have enough time is, as you say, called time affluence. But as you also mentioned, there's lots of evidence that time affluence is actually at a record low. I can't think of a single practicing doctor who would say that they have enough time in their average day. It's so common, I think, that being time poor, we actually feel like that's normal now. And it can even be seen as a badge of honor, especially in our profession. But this is a really unhealthy way to think about it because being chronically short on time isn't just stressful, but the evidence says that people who feel time poor are overall much less happy. They have higher rates of anxiety and depression. They're less physically active than people who feel like they have enough time. They're actually less productive at work, not more productive. They have worse health overall, and they're even more likely to get divorced. I feel really good about going on a long trail run this morning before we recorded the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think this is something that we really need to think more about because being time poor is actually as bad for our health as being unemployed. That's what the research says. Now, the paradox is that the research also shows that we actually have more discretionary time than we ever have before, on average. Let me guess what you're going to say next. It's all the internet's fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely all the internet's fault. Well, that's what I tell my kids. <laughs> it's certainly easy to uh, waste a lot of time on the internet. So, but it's a bit of a puzzle. I mean, how can we be time poor on the one hand, that's a real thing, but objectively have more time. And a lot of the time it's because we trade our time for money, thinking that that's going to make us happy. So you might think that making more money would be an advantage, like being a doctor, for example, but studies show that people who earn more money actually report feeling more pressed for time and not less. And so I think doctors are, are great examples of this. So why does this all happen? Well, there's this thing called commodity theory that might give us a big part of the answer, and it's not complicated. Commodity theory says that when a resource is perceived as valuable, it's also perceived as scarce. So this applies to both time and money. We feel like they're both scarce. So when people talk about a scarcity mindset, they're talking about how our thinking changes when we feel like we don't have enough of something that we need. So what happens is we get tunnel vision on that one thing we think we need more of. And then everything inside that tunnel, we see crystal clear. But the problem is that we become blind to everything outside the tunnel, all the other things that lead to a complete life. And this has some pretty big significant consequences. It can lead to more unhappiness, worse relationships, just a feeling of being imbalanced in our life, and even worse decision-making ability, which can trigger a vicious cycle. And so we get stuck between two scarce resources, 
On the one hand, we know that our time is valuable, so losing our time feels painful. But then on the other hand, we feel like money is even more valuable, and so we feel compelled to work more and earn more. And so you can see that there's a big conflict there. We can trade our time for money or our money for time, but we can't really optimize one without sacrificing the other. And so to escape this conflict, what we really need to do is ask ourselves a simple question. What is our money for? Is it to buy a yacht? Is it to travel for a year? Is it to retire completely? I mean, only you can decide how your money is going to be best put to use. I'm certainly not here to judge anyone. But the point is to understand money well enough so that we're not trapped by our finances, but instead we're free to choose and to understand the consequences of those choices. So basically, what you're trying to say is control of time is the key to happiness in one sentence. <laughs> yeah? Yes. The highest purpose for our money is to have control of our time. All right. Yeah. Such an important concept. You know, I, I've been practicing emergency medicine for about 20 years now, and I'm old enough to start thinking about retirement. You had mentioned retirement. Now, on the surface, it would seem that retiring from emergency medicine would be a good thing. You know, no more chaotic environments, no more shift work with all the sleep disturbance, less stress, et cetera. But it turns out that when people retire, most of them are less happy and less satisfied with life than they were when they were working, especially if they don't have a lot of hobbies or other interests. You know, I, I was chatting with Aaron Ciel a few years back. He's uh, known to most of our EM Cases listeners uh, as our orthopedic EM guru. And he's a bit older than me. And we were talking about retirement. And he said that his father gave him some great advice. He said, you don't retire because you're old. You get old because you retire. Again, you don't retire because you're old. You get old because you retire. And in other words, retiring makes you older and working keeps you young and vibrant. So ideally, I suppose we want to work for many years to come, but in a way that makes work satisfying and enjoyable and achieve financial independence at the same time. But for some of us who are burnt out from EM and you know have huge mortgages to pay, that seems really hard to do. How should we design our work lives so that we can have a sort of a happier, healthier life while achieving financial independence? I know that's a big question, but... <laughs> oh, it's one of my favorite questions. Um, I totally agree with you. This might sound a little bit crazy, but I actually think that retirement is a bit of a dirty word. And let me try to explain that. A lot of people don't know this, but here's where the idea of retirement came from. Retirement was actually invented about 150 years ago by the Chancellor of Germany, a guy named Otto von Bismarck. So at that time, Germany had a problem with high unemployment among the young people in the population. And so Otto announced that if you were 70 years old or older, the government was going to pay you to leave the workforce. And it worked. Old people got paid to stop working and young people got jobs. In fact, it was such a successful strategy that other countries followed suit. And now here we are 150 years later, living in a world, at least in the developed world, where most people think that retirement is just what you do. We don't even question it. And that suits the financial services industry just fine, by the way, because they make billions of dollars every year in fees as we try to save enough money and invest it using their products. And so 
Retirement is actually a giant social experiment. Economically, it works, but individually, as you were alluding to, it can be a bit of a nightmare because you're absolutely right. What the evidence says is that after adjusting for age, people who choose to stop working have double the risk of reporting their health as only fair or poor. They have three times the risk of being physically inactive compared to people who choose to keep on working. And they have a 40% increased risk of mental illness like depression. So retirement is built up as this dream that many doctors are willing to kill themselves to get to. And then unfortunately, sometimes it turns out to be a bit of a disappointment. So I think that retirement is a bit of a flawed concept because humans are fundamentally built to work. We're not built to sit around and live lives of leisure. People who don't have a reason to get up in the morning tend to stop getting up in the morning. We're not thriving unless we're striving for something, but that's the key. We want to be able to choose what we're striving for, not be told what to do by somebody else. So the reason I'm so passionate about helping people become financially independent is not so that they can retire and stop working, but to be able to choose how they work based primarily on their values rather than the compensation that that work might offer. And that's when we really get to start feeling good about the work that we're doing. By the way, here's an interesting little fact. I don't know Japanese, but I've been told that there is no Japanese translation for the word retirement. No word that means to voluntarily stop work completely due to your age. But they do have another word that's really cool that we don't have, and it's called ikigai. And it roughly translates into life worth or life meaning. And it's a really powerful concept. I think the best way to understand Ikigai is to picture a Venn diagram with four circles. In the first circle, you have activities that you love to do. And then in the second circle, you have activities that you're good at. And there's going to be some overlap between those. And then in the third circle, there are things that your community needs. And then in the fourth circle, there are things that you can get paid for. And where all of those circles overlap, that's Ikigai. That's somebody's reason for being. That's the reason to get up in the morning. And it's not just a nice idea. There was a study done of over 43,000 Okinawans. So that's Okinawa is a, a, an island in Japan that people might have heard of because it has some of the longest lived people in the world. And that study of over 43,000 people showed that those who reported Ikigai had statistically significant better relationships better education, better employment, they enjoyed better health, and they actually lived longer. So to me, sustainable, meaningful work is something that you love, that you're good at, that your community needs, and you can be fairly compensated for. So our challenge is to design our careers in medicine to tick all those boxes. I mean, your roles are probably going to evolve over time, but why would you want to retire from something like that? Yeah, the Ikigai concept is really an interesting one. I was introduced to it about 10 years ago. Uh, it was about two years into me doing the podcast, the MCASES podcast. And at the time, I didn't really have much guidance of how to do a podcast. And it was a ton of work. I mean, I was doing like 30 hours a week of work on EM cases. And I was almost like kind of burning out from doing EM cases and trying to do emergency medicine at the same time. But then I went to this course, 
in New York with uh, some of my other foam colleagues. Uh, Anand Swami Nathan was teaching there and Salim Rizé was teaching there. And they introduced me to this concept of Ikigai. And what I realized with those four circles, you know, something that you enjoy doing, activities that you enjoy doing, activities that you're good at, and then something that will help your community, and then something you can make a little bit of money from. And it kind of dawned on me at that time that EM cases kind of fit that bill for me perfectly. And so that's kind of what helped me to kind of prevent my burnout from just working ridiculously hard on it. (laughs) When other people approach me in trying to mentor younger physicians about how they should go about extracurricular emergency medicine activities, I try to remind them and explain to them this Ikigai principle, which I think is a good way of thinking about it for sure. Yeah, it's it's just so different from our cultural norms. I mean, it's it always amazes me how we can go through sometimes our entire life functioning on assumptions. Like we just go through, you get an education, you do your best to get a good job, you work your ass off at that job through the best years of your life with the goal to retire and stop working. And we just follow that path because we just accept that that's the path that you're supposed to follow. But it's a cultural norm and it's and it's not the only choice we have. So I've had exactly the same experience as you with this course actually. Like I found myself when especially when I was developing the course initially and I'm constantly revising it, but I'll find myself waking up at five in the morning. I go and make coffee and I sit in front of the computer and I'm working on the course, not because there's a deadline or because anybody's told me that I have to, but just because like I, I want to be doing that and I'm trying my hardest to be good at it. Uh, and it's clear to me that it's something that's really valuable and, uh, and potentially I can make a little bit of money at it. All right, so we've been talking about being happy and we all have slightly different ideas about what makes us happy. I want to look at happiness a little bit more objectively, and you've touched on this a bit already. I mean, happiness has been studied extensively. What do the well-done studies out there tell us about what leads to happiness? What the evidence says is that what makes us happy now are the same things that have made human beings happy for the last 200,000 years. Good health, spending time with friends and family, doing nice things for people even when we don't have to, and engaging in activities that we find rewarding, especially ones that put us in flow states. So things like sports or art or music that we can lose ourselves in. And I believe that if we were to use those things, our values, as the guiding principles for our spending rather than YouTube commercials or looking at what our colleagues are wearing or driving or living in, we'd likely all be a lot happier. I like how you outline these evidence-based keys to happiness as the the four Fs, fitness, friends and family, flow states, and philanthropy, which (laughs) we were talking about music. If you're a Fish fan, then you can understand why we put the F for philanthropy. (laughs) There's... There's no faster and more effective way to elevate your mood 
than to do something nice for somebody. Or if you're like me and you're an introvert and you don't really feel like interacting with people when you're a little bit grumpy, go online and and donate some money to charity. I guarantee you it will make you feel better. Yeah, absolutely. So doing nice things for people, exercising regularly, hanging out with friends and family, you know, building those relationships and then flow states. I mean, for me, I'm a musician and when I'm playing music in a band, there's just nothing that makes me feel better, especially if you're performing in front of people who are also enjoying the music and then, you know, mountain biking, it's, you can totally get into a flow state until you break your humerus and then the flow state stops (laughs) abruptly. (laughs) We've talked about these four F's of being happy, but there's no money in those four F's. (laughs) But certainly we all know that if you have no money, you will be unhappy. And I've also heard that if you have all the money you could ever want in the world, you'll probably be unhappy as well. But that's sort of a different discussion. So, I mean, it does bring up the question of, Where's the sweet spot in terms of earning money? How much money do you need to be happy? Yeah, this is really interesting. I'll admit that if somebody offered me a million dollars right now, I would jump at it just like anybody else would. There's this visceral reaction that makes us feel like more money is going to make us happier, no matter how much we already have already. What the sociological data says is that more money does lead to more happiness, but only up to a certain point only up to about $100,000 per year of income. And after that, more money doesn't mean more happiness. So that's the empiric evidence. And I think it's because $100,000 is more than enough to take care of the essentials. But beyond that, most people are just going to use the money to buy more stuff, and stuff just doesn't make us happy. But a higher income isn't pointless. I think there are two ways that an income more than $100,000 can lead to more happiness. First, if you learn how to save and invest and become financially independent, then you have control of your time and you can use that time to pursue what's meaningful and enjoyable to you. You have time affluence. And then second, if you have more than enough money, you can share it with people who are struggling with less. So that might mean helping out a family member, it might mean donating to charity, or even just tipping extravagantly at the coffee shop. I mean, try going to Starbucks and buying a single coffee and giving a $20 tip and see if you think it raises the happiness level in the room. So if we're fortunate enough to make more than $100,000 per year, I think that the best ways to increase happiness are to improve our time affluence and to help the people around us be happier. We've talked quite a bit about earning, and the four things we wanted to cover were earning, spending, saving, and investing. So let's move on to spending. We all spend money on different things. Some of us like fancy cars, others buy a summer cottage, others like to give to charity, others travel, others stay at five-star hotels, enjoy a fine meal out. There's all kinds of things we can spend our money on. And my guess is that many of us have bought something online on a whim and regretted it later. And you've alluded to this already. Our hard-earned money can be depleted pretty quickly if we're not careful. First, how should we think about spending our money so that we don't run our bank accounts into the ground? 
Let's talk about sort of the theory first, and then we can get on to some of the practicalities of spending. Spending is a really tricky problem for most people. I know I've struggled with it over the years. I had a doctor tell me once that she'd rather walk into work naked than let her coworkers see her credit card statements. So it's so easy to overspend in our culture because we're subjected to an endless stream of amazing new items that we think are going to make us feel good. But the side effect is often some buyer's remorse, a little bit of shame. But it's really pretty understandable. I mean, every one of us is running on biology that was designed over millions of years to help us survive and reproduce in an environment of scarcity, mainly food scarcity. When we think about things that will give us calories or improve our status, there's this deep primal system that kicks in and we get a surge of dopamine. Now, most people think that dopamine is a reward hormone, but it's actually not. Primarily, dopamine is a hormone of desire and motivation. Dopamine makes us want more of the things that we don't have. It's what drives drug addicts, but it also drives academic achievement and beautiful art and even love. So it's not a bad thing. It's the force that motivates us to push through challenges. It's this biological mechanism. It's incredibly powerful, but it can also be incredibly irrational, especially in the context of the modern world. So What ends up happening is we see something we want, say a nice new car, and maybe we go out and buy it, thinking that it'll make us happier than a car that cost half as much. But soon after we have it, the excitement starts wearing off. The dopamine is gone because dopamine is a molecule of wanting what we don't have. It's not a molecule of gratitude. To feel consistently content and motivated, we need a good, healthy baseline level of dopamine that doesn't fluctuate wildly. Interestingly, the more intensely we want something, the more our dopamine falls after we get it. So the trend is that the bigger the purchase, the more likely we'll feel worse after getting it than we did before. So a lot of us end up on this dopamine roller coaster. We feel maybe a little bit crappy one day and we see something that we want and maybe we buy it and we feel good for a surprisingly short amount of time and then we feel kind of bad again and then the cycle can repeat. And a lot of people might recognize this. This is something called the hedonic treadmill. And in our quest to feel good, it's often pretty easy to justify buying nicer and nicer things. So what used to be special to us and exciting just becomes our new normal. So if you need a new watch, you're not looking at Timexes anymore, you're looking at Rolexes. If you need a new car, it's not a Toyota, it's a Lexus. If you need a vacation, it's not a road trip, it's Club Med in Fiji. And we call this lifestyle inflation. And it's a pretty common way to, as you say, Anton, run our bank accounts into the ground. We get addicted to luxury. There's a personality, a professor at Stanford, actually, named Andrew Huberman. He's got a great podcast called The Huberman Lab. And he has a definition of addiction that I think is really simple and profound. He says that addiction is the progressive narrowing of the things that can bring us pleasure. So biologically, it's not much different from being addicted to drugs. We get used to higher and higher levels of luxury, and our dopamine system keeps on driving us to want more and more just to feel normal. All right. So that's some really interesting stuff about the theory and some of the pathophysiology, I guess, of, <laughs> of why we buy stuff. 
What are some sort of practical ways then that we can avoid this? Well, I think the first thing is just to be aware that we're pretty terrible at predicting what's going to make us happy. Don't fool yourself into thinking that a new car or a new boat or a kitchen renovation is going to make you happier because they probably won't. What makes us happy are those things that we talked about before. And I have to remind myself of them all the time. The four F's, friends and family, fitness, philanthropy, and flow experiences. When it comes to happiness, the things we buy just don't tend to do what we think they're going to do. Spending wisely isn't always about spending less. It's about spending on things that matter and developing a bit of wisdom about that so that we can recognize that Rolexes and Audis don't matter nearly as much as taking care of yourself and spending time with the people who you care about. So whether we're spending too much on crap that doesn't matter or too little because we're obsessed with hitting some dollar amount, spending wisely means spending things that support our values. So our values are the things that matter most to us in life. And it's easy to assume that, oh yeah, I know what my values are. Yeah, my decisions are generally in line with my values. But this is actually pretty tricky for a lot of people in my experience. You have to be really intentional to make decisions that are actually in line with your values. And the first step is to define what your values actually are. Making good spending decisions can be really tricky, but there are a couple of tips that I've learned over the years that have really helped me, so I'm happy to share a couple with you. The first one is that if you want something, you don't have to necessarily buy it right away, but you also don't necessarily have to deny yourself that thing. But it is really helpful to make yourself wait a little bit. That dopamine that we talked about before will naturally fade, and then you'll be able to think more clearly and be able to make a better decision about that thing that you're thinking of buying. And if you still want it a week or a month later, then you can go out and buy it and you're going to be a lot less likely to have buyer's remorse. The second tip that I have for you is even better, especially for big purchases, and that is to convert the price of a thing from dollars to hours. So say you're in the market for a car and you have a choice between a $40,000 car and an $80,000 car. It's obviously a $40,000 difference in dollars, but how many more hours would you have to work in order to buy the more expensive car? Well, you have to figure out your hourly rate, which is probably less than you think once you take into account all the extra unpaid hours that you work, doing paperwork and commuting and things like that. And then you also have to subtract your taxes, CME, membership licensing expenses. I've done the math, and I would estimate that the average Emerge Doc's hourly rate is probably somewhere around $75 an hour. So back to our car example, that means that you would have to work over 500 extra hours to buy the $80,000 car versus the $40,000 car. And that's not to say that it's the wrong decision, but now you have a much more concrete and a fuller way to, de to determine if it's the right decision for you. But if you forget everything else about spending, just realize that we are not bottomless wells of self-control. So focus your energy on where you'll get the biggest bang for your buck. You will be ahead of 90% of other people if you can control your spending on just two things, your house and your vehicle. Forget the latte factor. 
In fact, I think that we should allow ourselves to spend guilt-free on the little things that bring us and the people around us pleasure. Buy lattes for the whole department every now and then. But control your spending impulses on your car and your house, and you'll probably be just fine in the long run. Some great ways of thinking about things there. Very interesting. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. I get the schedule I want, hassle-free, and the efficiency of the ED improves because there are these amazing algorithms based on each individual doc's efficiency. Very cool. The Metricade team has been helping EDs react to the impacts of COVID-19, from reallocating resources while volumes are changing to finding coverage for physicians who have to go off on quarantine. They're doing the work of managing schedules so that you can focus on clinical duties. If you're interested in a three-month free trial of their standard service, just go to metricade.com slash emcases and sign up. So far, we've talked about earning and spending. There's lots more to talk about with earning and spending, but I think we're going to have to move on now to saving. We all save a bit differently. I personally had it hammered into my head from my parents to start saving the second I got my first job at the age of 15. Others concentrate on paying off student debts and mortgages you know, before they start saving. There's all different ways of slicing and dicing this. The first question I have about saving is when should you start saving? Well, if you have debt with a high interest rate, say over about 5%, you should pay that off first. Otherwise, the best time to start saving is now. If you're a resident, there's a huge amount of value in getting into the habit of saving and investing, even a few hundred dollars a month, even if you have low interest student loans. But if you're mid or late career and you're feeling a little bit behind, it's not too late. Let me give you an example that shows why starting to save and invest now is always the right choice. Say we're both first-year emergency medicine residents, Anton, and we both want to be financially independent in 30 years. You're more on the ball than me, though, and you start saving right away, say $500 a month while we're residents, and then you increase your savings to $5,000 a month when we're in practice. I, on the other hand, get distracted by other things, and I don't start saving until year 10. But at that point, I try to make up for it by saving 50% more than you're saving, $7,500 a month. By the 30-year mark, I would have actually saved over $100,000 more than you. I would have had to put over $100,000 more into my savings. But assuming a 6% rate of return, you would actually end up with almost a million dollars more than me. Which also means that if I wanted to get to the same place as you financially, I would have to work about another five years. It can be hard for some of us to get motivated to save because the first 10 years of saving and investing can feel like really slow progress. But after 10, 20, 30 years, the effect of compounding is really incredible. So even though it's never too late to start saving, it's also never wise to delay it. All right. Save now. <laughs> Save <laughs> now. So I want to get into a little bit more about exactly how much to save. So 
let's just try and give some examples here. So the median income of an emergency physician in the United States is $298,174 a year, according to a quick online search that I, I found at uh, salary.com. So let, let's call it $300,000 US dollars a year. What proportion of this income should we try to save? Like, should it be 10%? So that would be you know 30,000 bucks a year, 20%, which would be 60,000 bucks a year. Should we be saving 30% of our income more than that? You know, what, what's just kind of a rough number that would kind of be reasonable? Well, I try not to be dogmatic about anything when it comes to personal finance. I think it's all about giving people good, unbiased information so that they can then go out and make their own decisions that are going to be best for them. So the answer to how much should I save is going to be different for different people. One thing I will say, though, is that we're better off thinking of our savings rate as a ratio rather than a dollar amount. So if you have two doctors, one is saving $100,000 a year and the other is only saving $75,000 per year, well, who do you think is going to be financially independent first? You might think it's going to be the first doctor, but if they're making $600,000 a year and saving $100,000 a year, and the second doctor is making $250,000 a year and saving $75,000 a year, That means the first doctor is saving 15% of their income and the second one is saving 30% of their income. And that means that the first doctor will likely have to work over 40 years to become financially independent versus only about 28 years for the second one. And so it's the ratio of saving to income that matters. Because if you're saving more, you're learning to live and be happy on less. So to use your example, Anton, of a doctor earning $300,000 a year, let's say that's $200,000 after taxes so that we have round numbers. Saving 30% of that would be $60,000 a year, leaving $140,000 to live on. That's pretty good living. And you're really likely to be financially independent in about 28 years or so. Saving 10% would be about $20,000 a year leaving $180,000 to live on. So you get to live in a slightly nicer house and drive a slightly nicer car, but you also have to work about 12 years longer. It's the percent of our after-tax income that we save that matters. So this is what it boils down to. The more money we think we need to be happy, the less time we're going to have to enjoy it. And the less money we need to be happy, the earlier that will achieve financial independence. So there's a great quote by the economist and writer Thomas Sowell that a friend of mine sent to me years ago. He said, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And I think that's true in medicine, in finance, and in life. There are no perfect solutions, but we can, and we should, be well-informed about the trade-offs. Yeah, it's such an interesting concept that the more money we think we need to be happy, the less time we'll have to enjoy it. That's, uh, that's pretty profound. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm chatting with physicians about financial planning, so often the conversation turns to investing. You know, and we haven't even mentioned investing really much at all so far. Investing your money seems to overshadow the importance of simply saving money. What's more important, would you say, savings or investment returns? Yeah, it's funny how that always happens. I mean, 
what's happening with pot stocks these days, or I know a guy who bought Amazon when it's $10 and now he's buying Shopify or holy crap, Bitcoin just dropped 50% again. Like, should I sell or should I buy more? I get it. There's tons of drama and excitement. Lots of people who treat the stock market like a casino. So there are always crazy stories of huge wins while most of the disastrous losses are swept under the rug and not talked about. I think actually that's a very important point that when I'm speaking with colleagues, they say, oh yeah, this guy made this much and this woman made that much doing this. But of course, you're never going to hear about the people who lose money. They're not going to be... (laughs) They're not going to be showing off to their colleagues about how much they lost. Yeah, isn't it interesting that we're all so familiar with selection bias when it comes to uh, medical literature, but we don't realize that when we're hearing these stories about uh, investments that there's uh, even more selection bias happening there. Exactly, exactly. So the truth is that investing wisely is actually very simple and very boring. Unfortunately, all the chatter, and we see it in the staff room and online and on TV all the time, makes people think that they need to know about all that stuff to be a good investor, but you don't. In fact, you're better off ignoring all of that noise. If you're interested in learning about money and maybe even managing your own investments, you have lots of time to learn and get comfortable with the simple, low-cost, evidence-based approach that we should all be using. Don't let fear of investing stop you because the truth is that for the next 10 or 15 years, your savings are contributing more to your account balance than your investment returns are. So to give you a specific example, if I were to start investing $10,000 a year right now, earning 7%, by year 15, I would have $250,000. But 60% of that quarter million dollars would be the money that I had put in, and only 40% of it would be from the investment returns. It's likely that only after about the first 15 years are your investment returns going to become a bigger factor than your savings. So don't let fear of investing stop you from saving. As long as we're not taking crazy risks, how much we save is more important than choosing the perfect investment. Okay. So assuming that saving is more important than the intricacies of investing, in order to know how much we need to save, we need to have an idea of how much money we need to retire comfortably and how much we need in case of an emergency. There's all kinds of guides and calculators out there for figuring out how much money you need to retire, but I find them a bit confusing. I sort of feel like I'm never saving enough sometimes How do you think about how much to save for retirement? Are there any sort of golden rules for that? This is one of the fundamental questions. How much do I need to be financially independent or for retirement? Unfortunately, a lot of people think they need to hire an expensive financial advisor to get the answer to that question, but I'll give you a great little shortcut. It's called the 4% rule. It was developed by a financial advisor named William Bengen in the 1990s, and it's been tweaked and adapted since then, but it's still a really powerful tool. What it says is that based on historical stock and bond market returns, if you have a balanced portfolio, you can take out 4% of that portfolio per year, adjusting for inflation, 
and be very unlikely to run out of money over a typical 30-year retirement. So if you have a $2 million portfolio, for example, and your living expenses are $80,000 a year, then you're very likely in the ballpark of being able to retire because 80000 is 4% of $2 million. So astute listeners might also realize that you can use this in reverse. Say you know your annual expenses are $100,000. Well, that's your 4%. You just multiply that by 25, and that's approximately how much you need. That's your financial independence or your retirement number. Now, it's not a hard and fast rule. It's more of a rule of thumb. It changes a little with taxes and government benefits and what you hold in your portfolio and your risk tolerance, but it's a great starting point. And then from there, you can use some planning tools with more detail. All right. So that's a whole lot of great stuff about saving. Just some take-home points on saving is start saving early or now, if you haven't already. That saving is relative. It depends on the ratio of saving to spending, and that saving basically trumps investing. How much you save is seems to be more important than exactly how you invest. At least for the first 15 years. So now that we have a good idea about how to think about earning and how to think about spending and how to think about saving, I want to move on to sort of the crux of the podcast, and that is financial planning. We're going to talk about taking stock of our financial situation, setting goals, and then bridging the gap between saving and investments. But first, I just want to talk a bit about rigid and flexible financial planning. What is the difference between rigid and flexible financial planning? I love this topic. It's so important. And in my opinion, it's not talked about enough. Do you remember when Coke and Pepsi came in those glass bottles? I used to work in a grocery store as a teenager, and every single shift, someone would knock one off the shelf. And even if it was a low shelf, the thing would shatter and there'd be a sugary, foamy mess to clean up. Now, of course, all the bottles are plastic. And when they're subjected to trauma, they flex and rebound. And our retirement plans are the same way. They're going to be subjected to the ups and downs of the market. They're going to be subjected to a little bit of trauma, but how we build them has a huge impact on their resilience. Typically, retirement planning goes something like this. Like, what's your dream retirement lifestyle? Okay, that's going to cost X amount every year. Adjust that for inflation, and then the software spits out a number for how much you need to save. But there's two assumptions there, and they're assumptions that can carry a pretty heavy cost. The first assumption is that people will never earn another dollar again after they retire. And that's fine if that's what you want. But most of us are going to want to do some kind of work. That's a big part of what brings meaning to our lives. And if the kind of work that you want to do can make even a modest income, then that can have a huge impact on how much you need to save in the first place because it's money that you don't have to be taking out of your investments. And then the second opportunity that we have to be flexible is in our spending. If you insist on withdrawing exactly the same amount every single year in retirement, no matter what your investments are doing, you're going to have to save a lot more in order to achieve an acceptable level of safety for that plan. But if you're willing to adjust your spending a little, and I don't mean on the necessities, just your discretionary spending. So that means spending a little bit more 
on cars and vacations, for example, when your investments are doing well, and a little bit less when markets are down. Well, multiple studies show that being flexible like that will significantly increase the success rate of your financial plan, allowing you to be financially independent earlier. So I'm a huge proponent of flexible financial planning, but at the very least, I think it's something that everyone should consider because no financial plan is bulletproof. All right. Better to be flexible than rigid with your financial planning, for sure. Got it. Absolutely. I had mentioned this a little bit when we started off this section on financial planning, that we're going to be talking about taking stock of our financial situation, setting goals, and then bridging the gap between saving and investments. For sound financial planning, we first really do need to take stock of our financial situation. And for some of us, it's not exactly clear how much money we actually make because some of us have overhead expenses. We write off some things, other, other things we can't write off. It's actually sometimes difficult to figure out exactly how much money you have to spend or invest or save. The other parts of taking stock besides how much we make is figuring out how much we spend. And then there's also our investments and our debt. So a lot of moving parts here. How do you suggest we take stock of our financial situation? How do we do that? I think the biggest problem in my experience is a willingness to take a close look at exactly what your situation is. But as you say, this is the first step in financial planning, and it can be a little bit intimidating because a lot of us are afraid of what we might find when we put our own numbers under the magnifying glass. You might be like, holy shit, I make this much and I only saved that much? Or looking at your investments and feeling embarrassed that you've been paying ridiculously high fees for years. Or maybe the hardest of all is combing through your credit card statements and facing the reality of how much you've actually been spending. But it really is the first step. And I love it because it requires zero special skill or knowledge you just have to sit down and do it. And what I find is that everyone thinks it's going to be boring, but it's actually really exciting because there are always super obvious and easy changes that immediately come to light. And that's a great motivator to learn more and to get yourself on a better path in a way that really feels good. All financial planning is, is defining where you are, where you want to be, and then figuring out how you're going to get there. But the first step is an honest accounting of your income, assets, debts, and spending. It's pretty cool that you can make looking at financial statements something that's inspiring, but uh, I'll be convinced for now. Um, some of us have financial advisors and some of us do our own investing. Uh, you've already alluded to some of the dangers of having a financial advisor. What are the advantages and disadvantages of having a financial advisor versus DIY financial planning? And by the way, I actually happen to have a financial advisor who I think is fantastic, yeah. who does not, you know, quote unquote, rip me off with fees. I do pay uh, some sizable fees for some things, but uh, I think it's well worth it because he provides me all kinds of advice on everything from housing to insurance to all kinds of great stuff. And I do feel pretty comfortable being aware that there are other financial advisors who definitely can rip you off. It sounds like you are confident that you have a good one. And that's wonderful. If you know the services that you're getting and you know what you're paying for those services and 
you are getting value for your money, that's great. There's no reason to leave them. Right off the bat, I will say that I am a DIY investor and I believe that there are thousands of doctors out there who would benefit enormously from moving in that direction. But there is certainly a role for good financial advisors for a lot of doctors. Ideally, fee-for-service advice-only planners. They can walk you through the financial planning process. They can help manage our behavior when we're tempted to do the wrong thing. And they can take care of things like rebalancing your portfolio and adjusting things based on changes in your life. But notice that I said a good financial advisor or planner. Unfortunately, People in the finance industry, even though they might live in the same neighborhood as doctors and drive even nicer cars than us, they're not trained to the same standards that we are, and they're often not held to the same ethical standards in their industry. The average advisor is certainly not trained to be as evidence-based as we are, but even more important than that is for us to understand that the finance industry is fundamentally a sales industry. In general, these are giant companies that do what companies do. They're trying to make a profit. So the industry is permeated with conflicts of interest because guess where their profits come from? From us, the investors, in the form of fees. So what's in their best interest is often to extract as much in fees as they can get away with, and that's exactly what we need to avoid as investors. They might seem small, but those fees have a huge effect, much bigger than most people realize. I'll give you a quick example. Say you invest $100,000 for 25 years, earning 6% per year. At the end of 25 years, you would have $430,000. If you pay just 2% in annual fees, how much are you going to be left with at the end of 25 years? 2% less, 20% less? In reality, your nest egg would actually be chopped in half by that 2% fee. It's really deceiving, but those fees come out every single year, even if your investments go down. So not only is that money gone forever, but you've also lost the compounding returns that that money would have generated. But even looking at a single year, say you have a $1.5 million portfolio and you're paying 2% in fees. Well, that's $30,000 every year or $2,500 every month or over $120 every single working day. In my experience, for a lot of people, that knowledge, those numbers, are all the motivation they need to start learning about personal finance. At least that was the motivation that I needed. Honestly, the biggest regret that I hear from DIY investors is not that they might have made a few little mistakes along the way, but that they didn't take control of their investments sooner. All right. So if you are going to have a financial advisor it's important to know exactly what the fees are, figure out what those fees are going to cost you, and then figure out whether their service is worth those fees in the end. Uh, and if it doesn't seem so, either change financial advisors or if you have the time and interest, DIY is the way to go. And it's also, I think, worth noting that it's not an all or nothing situation. It's not either do everything you're on your own or hire a financial advisor. Mm -hmm. There's also compromises or halfway solutions. Like there are a growing number of fee-for-service advice-only planners who can help you put together that plan and can really hold your hand through setting things up 
on your own. Sure. And there are also robo-advisors that are a fraction of the cost and will still put you in a, a nice evidence-based investment plan. The problem with robo-advisors is they're not really good at helping with a more comprehensive financial plan in terms of spending, uh, saving, insurance, and things like that. I see. Okay. Yeah. And I do know a few colleagues who do a blend. They have a financial advisor for some things, and then for other things, they do DIY. And that's actually a pretty smart way to go because in general, if you go with a full service financial planner, no matter how much money you have with them, you're still going to get a comprehensive financial plan. So you can take the best parts of having a financial planner, which is that, in my opinion, getting a comprehensive financial plan and still keep your fees low by, uh, by having a significant portion of your investments in a lower fee option. Got it. So just like in emergency medicine, we all have a slightly different risk tolerance, and the same can probably be said for how we invest our money. Now, before we get into stocks and bonds and mutual funds and ETFs and the like, what would you say are the biggest risks for investors? This is another reason that I think with the right tools, doctors can make great investors. We assess and manage risk all the time. Traditionally in finance, risk has been equated with volatility. And in general, the higher the volatility of an investment, the higher the expected return is going to be. But I think that there are much more important risks, and those are the ones that can stop us from achieving our financial goals. So the first big risk is paying high fees, which we've talked about. Given the low-cost products that are available now, there's just really no reason to accept high fees anymore. We can likely be financially independent in half the time by avoiding high fees. The second big risk is not having an evidence-based approach. It's just like if you have a crashing patient who needs to be intubated in the emergency room, you could blast in there with one big syringe of fentanyl and another with succinylcholine, not knowing what the patient's potassium is, and shove a straight blade down their throat and hope for the best. You'll either look like a reckless hero or you'll kill the patient, or you can follow the evidence, you can be methodical, you can follow a plan, and no one's going to be surprised when the patient is safely on the vent and to the untrained eye, you might appear boring and maybe even a little bit anal retentive, but you're going to save a lot more people in the long run, and it's the long run that matters. When it comes to investing, the old school cowboys try to time the market and pick hot stocks, and this is called active management. And occasionally they win, and you'll likely hear about those wins. But we have decades and decades of data that proves that, on average, they do worse than a simple low-cost fund that simply tracks the index, something called an index ETF that anyone with a computer can invest in. So you've mentioned ETFs, you've mentioned stocks, and you've mentioned mutual funds. The, the Really, the four big types of investments you can invest your money in are ETFs, mutual funds, stocks, and then there's bonds. Just quickly for the listeners out there who are sort of newer to this, what's the difference between these four? Yeah, sure. So most of us are used to making money by working, but we can also generate wealth by getting our money to work for us. And that's what investing is. It's learning how to make money while you sleep. So let's do bonds first because they're the oldest and the simplest form of investments. Bonds are just loans. When you buy a bond, you're loaning that money to a company or a government, and they agree to pay you back your money on a certain date plus interest. 
Stocks or shares or equities, those are all the same thing. These are little pieces of ownership of companies. So when you own a stock, as a partial owner of that company, you're entitled to the future earnings of that company and dividends they might pay, which are cash payments. Uh, and you have the option of selling that stock or that share to somebody else at any time on the stock market. Mutual funds are baskets of stocks that are selected by a fund manager, usually with the goal of picking stocks that are going to do better than average. So this is active management. And in exchange for that professional management, the fund charges the investor fees, often about 2% per year, uh, something called the MER or the management expense ratio. And we've seen how those fees can add up. The usual argument that's made by people who sell mutual funds is that their fees are worth it because they're going to outperform the market. But unfortunately, to be blunt, those kinds of claims are BS. Over the last 10 years, the evidence is very clear. About 85% of actively managed mutual funds have underperformed a simple index ETF net of fees. And there's just no way to tell who might be in that lucky 15% in the next 10 years. So in contrast to mutual funds that are actively managed, index ETFs are what we call passive. So they still allow us to invest in stocks, but rather than attempting to pick stocks, index ETFs just buy all the stocks in an index. In fact, now there are these things called all-in-one ETFs that give you international diversification across multiple indexes and even some bond exposure, all in a single ticker symbol that you can buy through a simple online brokerage account. And the best part about index ETFs is that their whole business plan is designed around them being low fee. That's the main way that these companies compete with each other is by having the lowest fee. So instead of the 2% that you might pay for a mutual fund, an index ETF might cost 0.2% per year, one-tenth as much, or sometimes even less than that. All right. Yeah. It sounds like uh, if you own a boatload of mutual funds, you might want to consider changing those to ETFs. <laughs> I would strongly consider that. All right. Now, let's say you want to start investing yourself without a financial advisor or you have a financial advisor and you want to start doing some stuff outside of that on your own uh, and do some sort of blended thing. What are kind of the first steps that you should take to do this? You had mentioned that it is easy to do it on your own. How do you start that process? Yeah, I think that what you need to be a self-directed investor really boils down to three things. I think of them as three C's. Number one, do you care enough about finance and investing to learn more about it? Number two is, will you carve out the time that's needed to dedicate to this? It doesn't have to be a lot, but there is some time involved. And then number three is, do you have the confidence to create a plan and stick to it? And what you need to have confidence is the right knowledge and support and tools uh, in order to carry, th carry you through that process, especially when the market goes a little bit crazy as it's wont to do. So you don't have to go straight to total independence. You can start with a small amount of money, leaving the majority with a financial advisor. You can use a robo-advisor. There's all kinds of resources available to you to help build your confidence and your knowledge base 
books. There's a great, in Canada here, we have a great Facebook group called Physician Financial Independence. It's got 29,000 members and people are always asking questions on there. And there's lots of very knowledgeable and generous people on there who will give excellent detailed answers. And then lastly, uh, there's a growing number of advice-only flat fee planners. So you can pay likely a couple thousand dollars and they will walk you through the process of completing a comprehensive financial plan that will really get you off on the right foot if you want to be a DIY investor. Got it. All right. The three C's. I want to head towards the uh, last lap here in the podcast by asking you about your words of advice to healthcare providers at different points in their careers. So... If you had one or two or three words of advice for those listeners who are in medical school or residency when it comes to financial planning, what, what would those be? Don't be afraid to learn about money. I know you have lots of other priorities right now, and that's great. Prioritize being a good doctor, but don't forget about this stuff. Whether you know it or not, you're about to become a target for people selling all kinds of insurance and investment products that are often not going to be in your best interest. Don't commit to anything before you educate yourself and you fully understand it. And then lastly, start saving even a small amount in index ETFs. You'll have lots of time to figure the rest out, but start getting in that habit now. All right. And if you had a few words of advice for the EM casers who are, say, five years into practicing full-time emergency medicine, what would you say to them? Well, what I would say to them is that your loans are probably feeling like less of a burden and you might be tempted to really start living the quote-unquote doctor lifestyle now. And I would suggest to resist the temptation at least long enough to put an evidence-based financial plan together that will put you on the path to financial independence. Also make sure that you have appropriate term life and disability insurance, and then go ahead and spend. But don't work more just so that you can spend more. A colleague of mine once told me that emergency medicine is like radiation. There's a cumulative lifetime dose and it's pretty easy to burn out if you don't pace yourself. <laughs> that was, that was Aaron, by the way. That was Aaron. Oh, that was, that was another CL. Yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> He's all full of amazing quotes. He is. Um, and then what about for those listening who are thinking about retiring in say five or 10 years? Uh, what would you advise for them? First of all, I would just like to thank you, those people who are in that situation. Emergency medicine can be a brutally challenging job, but I think it's the keystone of the entire healthcare system. And so thank you for your work and your years of service. If you focused on medicine and not on money up until this point, don't despair. It's not too late. There are things that you can do to transition out of emergency medicine if that's what you want to do and still have a comfortable and meaningful life. If money's not a concern, well, congratulations on that. Enjoy your retirement from emergency medicine by filling your days with other meaningful work that's hopefully a little less chaotic and better for your sleep patterns. But either way, when our active income from medicine stops, this is the most important time to make sure that you've got a solid plan in place that will keep you financially secure through your retirement. All right. Great words of wisdom. Well, Dr. Pointer, you've given me 
so much to think about when it comes to my own finances, you know, how I earn, how I spend, how I save, and how I invest. My hope is that everyone listening can come away thinking a little bit differently about their financial planning and how sound financial planning can augment their career in emergency medicine. So thanks so much for telling us your story and sharing with us all those amazing insights and analogies and quotes and everything. Well, it's my pleasure. I think this stuff is so important, and I am thrilled to be able to talk with you and your listeners about it, Anton. I really hope that this will inspire more doctors to learn more, to enjoy the huge benefits of understanding money. There are lots of great books, podcasts, blogs, and even a few courses out there. So thank you so much for inviting me to be here, Anton. Um, I'll also say that I love hearing from doctors. So if anyone wants to get in touch with me, uh, you can find me at moneysmartmd.com. And on my site, there are also blog posts, book recommendations, and links to online resources there. And all of that's completely free. Excellent. Yeah, we'll have some links to your site and uh, to some of those key resources for people to check out. Awesome. Awesome.